0: Well, welcome, everyone. We're very pleased to have you here with us for our webinar on tracking state law developments. My name is Robert Cunningham. I am a special counsel here at Kelly Drive, out of our Chicago office, and I'm joined by three partners, from our, uh, two from our privacy and information security group and one from our state attorney general practice. So we are going to lead you through a state law focused presentation with a particular eye toward Utah, which is of much relevance of late. And we'll tell you a bunch of other interesting things as we roll along, and I'll give you an agenda in a moment. But let me allow my colleagues to introduce themselves, starting with Aaron. Aaron, please go ahead. Thanks,
1: Robert. And hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I'm Aaron Burstein, and I'm a partner in Kelly Drive's Washington, D.C. office, where I'm part of the Privacy and Information Security Practice Group.
2: Okay. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Laura Van I am a partner in the um, Privacy and Information Security Group in Washington, D.C., and I'm so pleased to join you this afternoon.
3: And good afternoon, everybody. I'm Paul Singer. Um, I'm a partner and co chair our State Attorney, attorney General practice um, at Kelly Dry. And like Laura and Aaron and, and Robert, and and really glad to be here and uh, looking forward to this presentation.
0: All right. Well, thank you all. Our agenda should appear before you here. As advertised, we're going to start with an overview of what's happened or happened to you, I suppose, is more precise, in Utah right now. Then we're going to broaden our view and talk about current state laws more generally, uh, the ones that you have heard of, I presume, and others that you may not have. Part of the value add that we can provide for you because we're thinking about all of them. We're gonna then talk about your compliance strategy, uh, if you have one or how it might be revised or created in light of Utah and some of these other laws. And then we're gonna talk, uh, Paul mainly is gonna talk about enforcement and we will see what is on the horizon there. So with that, Aaron, I'm going to turn to you to talk about Utah. It's a new law, but we're not certain that there's a whole lot new in it, and maybe you can educate us on that score. So please regale us with the contents of the Utah law.
1: Sure. Uh, thanks, Robert. Um, you know, I think there are two ways to look at um, the Utah Consumer Privacy Act, UCPA, um, another acronym for us all to absorb. And one is sort of the political or optical um, environment that the law came from. And then there's the substantive provisions in the law itself, and we'll spend a bit more time digging into the substance in a couple of minutes. But I have just a couple of observations about um, the environment that, that led to the, the passage of the UCPA. And as we note here on the slide, this is the first state level comprehensive privacy law that um, has come out of a Republican controlled legislature um, and, and it also has a Republican governor. And as we noted at the top, we're sort of waiting to see finally, you know, will this become law or not? But um, both chambers of the Republican, uh, uh, sorry, the Utah legislature are um, have Republican super majorities by pretty large margins. Um, the law moved quickly, had unanimous votes in both the Utah Senate and the Utah House. Um, The the votes occurred within um, a week or two of of one another. Um, And the law, if it um, becomes the law of Utah, will go into effect at the end of this year, so um, not a huge amount of runway or transitional period for um, uh, folks to adjust to this to the extent that adjustments are necessary. Um, So, you know, whether this portends a broader trend um, for states to follow the the trail that has been blazed by California, Colorado, Virginia remains to be seen, um, but The the law itself has some features of it that are sort of dialed back from uh, other laws. And that takes us a little bit into the substance. The closest parallel is is really with Virginia and um, we'll highlight some of that in a minute. Um, I'll just point out that it's not uniformly um, less rigorous than all the other state laws. Um, so we need to be a little bit careful in drawing distinctions. So um, that's that's just sort of a brief overview um, for, of of the Utah law.
0: And Aaron, on that point about rigor or not, let's talk about from the perspective of comprehensive state privacy laws and, and who is subject to them. What does Utah have to say on that score about who it covers?
1: Yeah, so the first stop in figuring that out, in my mind, is uh, to look at um, the the definitions of what entities are covered. Utah uses the language of controllers and processors. uh, So at this point, the score is sort of three to one on that front. Um, California has its business and service provider language, but the other state laws um, use the GDPR style controller and processor. Uh, both of those are sort of included in the applicability section of Utah's law, um, but the, the criteria for coverage are um, a little bit narrower than we see in other states. So there's a, an overall revenue um, condition combined with what I think of as an activity level. For revenue, you have to generate $25 million or more in annual revenue, And as far as activity is concerned, controller process data of 100,000 consumers or more, consumers in this case being residents of Utah or earn um, more than half of your revenue from selling personal data um, uh, and controller process data of 20,000, 25,000 or more consumers. So um, the, the $25 million threshold is, in the CCPA, but that's sort of an independent condition for for being covered. And then there are certain exemptions from coverage. And some of these will look familiar from other areas, particularly an exemption for nonprofits, um, information that's covered by HIPAA or the GLBA or the FCRA um, covered activities are also exempt. And then there's also an exemption for institutions of higher education um, as well as a few other entities. Uh, so, you know, that that um, limits the applicability of the law, but um, not in, I'd say, a radically different way from what we've seen elsewhere.
0: Okay, and, and by your scoring logic, it looks like we've got another one in the wind column for personal data rather than personal information. Talk to us about the personal data contours under the Utah law. Uh,
1: yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know the um the the core of the personal data definition is similar to what we see elsewhere Um, you know it's information that's linked or reasonably linkable to an identifiable or, or or identified individual um you know one element that's missing from this definition is that of direct or indirect linkability um so you know arguably this this definition is somewhat narrower than, um, say, the personal information definition under the CCPA. Um, yeah, uh, thanks. Uh, so, you know, that's that's one um, just observation about the scope of, of this law. Um, you know, will this be something that gets picked up by other states? You know, we'll, we'll wait and see. Um, going along with that are two other points that that we wanted to raise. One is exemptions and like other state laws, Utah is exempting de-identified data, aggregate data and publicly available information. Um, We can get into some of the the details about what those terms mean, Um, but also on, uh, on track with other state laws, there is a sensitive data category and Here's an area where the Utah law is um, a little bit broader than say Virginia and sort of parallels um, what we see in in California, for example. So sensitive data under the UCPA includes data that reveals race, ethnic origin, um, health, religious beliefs, sexual orientation, immigration status and precise geolocation information. Um, as well as some other categories, but um, that's a fairly expansive list of sensitive data, and uh, that is afforded some heightened protections under the UCPA.
0: And controller obligations, here. Interesting elements here.
1: Yeah, so generally speaking, um, th- this is an area where. Some of the requirements uh, are pulled back a little bit from other state laws uh, relative um, relative to the other states. And I think, you know, the way I'd look at it is that Utah's act focuses on um, sort of the core individual rights and transparency and less on um, internal administrative Uh, procedures and requirements as well as regulation. So along those lines, uh, there are the fairly typical requirements of what needs to be in a privacy notice, um, categories of personal data, the purposes for which you're processing data, um, categories of third parties it's going to and and, um, what, what is going out the door to third parties as well as instructions about how to exercise um, the consumer rights. Um, controllers also have obligations to um, provide reasonable data security and not to discriminate um, against consumers who exercise their rights. Um, you know, missing from this list, uh, in addition to, to some of the internal measures that i mentioned, like the absence of a Um, data protection assessment requirement, Um, some of the principles that show up in other state laws, uh, like limiting data collection to what's um, adequate or relevant or proportionate to the process, uh, to the processing purposes, that's missing in Utah, Um, you know, maybe not a huge practical impact, but maybe a sign of, um, you know, the legislature's focus here on um, transparency and these core individual or consumer
0: rights. Speaking of those consumer rights, this is where the rubber meets the road for for many practitioners who are setting up their privacy program, Aaron. What can you tell us about the consumer rights that that Utah offers?
1: You know, I I think maybe the most, potentially significant difference um, is that the personal data that is subject to the access and deletion rights under Utah's law um, are uh, personal data that consumers provide to controllers. So it doesn't have language uh, about personal data concerning a consumer um, that perhaps was Collected indirectly or or from third party sources, um, so that's you know potentially one um, one difference that might have a practical impact in terms of, of how to um, respond to consumer requests. Some of the other limitations that that are in the UCPA um, in, include like only being able to exercise the rights once per year as opposed to twice. Um, allowing controllers some additional reasons or a little extra latitude to refuse or reject requests. And then a a, um, a general um, uh, provision that pseudonymized data um, is not within the scope of these rights. And then again, just sort of limiting the the, the universe of, of the rights that are available to consumers under the Utah law. There's not a right of correction. Um, there's not a right to appeal a controller's denial of um, uh, a, a consumer right um, under Utah's act.
0: Aaron, not to put you on the spot, but to immediately put you on the spot, the exemption for pseudonymous data or the carving out of pseudonymous data, the scorecard for that one is starting to pile up in favor of that exemption, correct? California has a different concept, but the subsequent laws have begun to align around carving out pseudonymous data. Do I have that right? Because that's non-trivial. Um, th-
1: yes, I, I, that that is the trend line that we're seeing. Um, you know, I think there is a lot um, of thought going into how to handle requests. I mean, this this is um, a persistent or, or, you know, a consistent set of questions around responding to rights requests. So, you know, that's very much um, an ongoing dialogue. Um, It's something that um, perhaps the the privacy board in California will shed some more light on um, through additional regulations. Um, But, you know, that's that's definitely a very dynamic area um, in terms of figuring out what's required and what's, you know, reasonably, achievable in terms of uh, um, defining pseudonymized data and figuring out what the boundaries are in in access and deletion responses.
0: And opt-outs, last piece here for you to comment on for us about Utah. Right, so uh,
1: this this trio um, also shows up elsewhere. Um, We have an opt-out for targeted advertising an opt-out of sale, Um, and then uh, what what is, I guess, different here among the three is that uh, for sensitive data, there is not an opt-in requirement, but rather a requirement to provide notice before collection and the opportunity to opt out. Um, So this is in distinction to the opt-in provisions in Colorado and Virginia um, for the types of sensitive data that they define. Um, and again, uh, the definition under the UCPA is fairly broad and includes the categories that, um, that we've shown here. So um, there's, there's no concept of profiling or um, inferences that could lead to profiling um, that, that we see in the other state's laws. So. Um, you know, it's targeted advertising and sale where the opt-out overlap is, and then we have an opt-out for sensitive data um, as well, where, where I saw that Virginia and Colorado at least have gone in the opt-in direction.
0: And, and here sale, correct me if I'm wrong, goes back to the more yeah. arguably more intuitive definition of monetary consideration, correct? That is correct. So it is, it is the narrower
1: um, definition, monetary consideration. Absolutely. All
0: right, well, Aaron, thank you very much for updating us on what's going on in Utah. We have checked the box on that promise to all of our listeners, and we will talk about Utah a little bit more as we roll along, definitely. But I wanna turn mainly to Laura now and talk about widening our scope and some of the trends that are going on in state legislation more broadly. And see where we stand. So, Laura, let me let me ask you: What are you seeing, and what do we need to stay abreast of more
2: generally? Yeah, I love that question. Um, and and certainly there are trend lines. Um, but before we jump to that, Robert, I, I want to uh, mention what we're not going to do uh, for the balance of our discussion. Um, because I, before there are questions in the in the chat about bills pending in city councils and in, in far-flung places of the country, um, somewhere that we're not able to answer, I, I just wanna be clear about, about who we are and what we do. Um, we are following trends, we're following key developments because they inform our advice on compliance and on enforcement. Um, and we wanna talk about those trends, we wanna talk about um, about how how they how they relate to enforcement, like the Utah bill that that, that Aaron um, just described. Um, so so I want to address trends, but but we don't um, know about about every single development. And we don't purport to. Um, but but as to trends, the the question that you that you just asked, um, there certainly are trends, and particularly in light of Congress's apparent. Um, Failure for the most part, despite a handful of members' best efforts to be sitting out comprehensive uh, privacy reform. Um, At least they're not tackling that anytime soon. Um, And until it does, um, until Congress does, that is, um, states are are getting into the game. Um, And for the most part, states seem to be following the Virginia model um, that that in the wake of um, looking at California and looking at Virginia, um, state legislators regard Virginia to be the less burdensome um, model, less burdensome on their domestic businesses. Um, The the bills that are are being introduced and that have some traction are not necessarily copycat bills, but they have many common elements, um, which include things, and Aaron mentioned this, um, things that that were in the Utah bill too, um, so we're looking at things like um, opt in for processing of sensitive data, um, opt out for targeted advertising, sales profiling, um, some new consumer rights for access, portability, deletion, correction, um, exclusion of, for categories of data or or even categories of entities. So uh, GLBA, FCRA, uh, HIPAA, et cetera. No private right of action. There was a question in the chat during um, Aaron's presentation about whether Utah had a private right of action. It doesn't. Um, and we're not seeing that for the most part in, in other state law bills with some important exceptions. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and for the most part, um, not uh, rulemaking, but rather enforcement by the state attorney general, which Paul's going to address um, later uh, this hour. By the way of a quick preview, um, even where there's no rulemaking and no private right of action, the statutes, though, they give state attorneys general new tools, and state AGs see privacy as a really critical area for their constituencies because while Congress hasn't taken up the mantle of comprehensive privacy legislation, consumers are concerned about privacy. And so legis- state legislatures are, are beginning to address this. And certainly we're seeing state AGs uh, beginning to address this um, through their efforts. Um, so, um, so yes, here we are.
0: And Maura, if, if, uh, yeah, if, if there's a lot of me too, in a manner of speaking, going on around the Virginia approach, what, what does it look like to, to not be uh, in that vein? And what are some of the other things that have that have perhaps flamed uh, out a little bit as it works?
2: Right, so, so I alluded to the fact that there are some outliers. Um, and what we've seen, um, and I'm picking on Massachusetts in my home state of um, New York a little bit here, um, is, is more aggressive models um, in a handful of states like a New York and Massachusetts um, where bills haven't advanced um, models that, that, don't, that don't follow a Virginia-like model. Um, it's just not to say that they might not advance, it's possible, and neither of those um, legislative sessions are over, um, but they looked at um, really different kinds of models with, um, for example, um, expansive opt-in models initially in Massachusetts, a duty of loyalty for controllers in New York. It's really a, a different kind of, of model. Um, and, and I should say too that that state legislator legislatures rather are not looking exclusively at, or at, at just privacy, at just comprehensive privacy legislation. There's other issues um, that that state legislatures are considering, um, importantly, uh, children. And here we're not necessarily talking exclusively about about privacy, although I think of of all of this as being wrapped in a privacy bow, but we're also talking about um, children and technology, uh, children in school, also, and 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 all of, of this remains a focus of uh, state legislators' attention. It's a, it's a rich area of policy development, and the intersection um, with state law privacy, with COPPA, with FERPA, and related laws make it an important area of um, risk assessment um, and risk mitigation for many companies who. Um, are in the space and not exclusively in the children's space, but but you know, have products that are um, child adjacent.
0: So Laura, it's fair to say that as much as we are focused today and perhaps more generally on state legislatures to drive our compliance concerns or worries, anxieties, state legislatures are not the only source of the of the privacy laws that companies need to be dealing with. As you said, there are Sector-specific um, laws or federal laws like COPPA. its not just all about state legislatures. Is that—is that what we're hearing?
2: Yeah, that—that's absolutely right. And when we're looking at at the the complete picture, you know, we think about all of this, and we also think about um, you know even even what's happening, not just what what you know what what what's coming down the pike. If we go to the next slide too, Robert, we've got um, pending action um, in California and Colorado, just on the regulatory front, um, thinking about what the, the regulators are, um, are in the midst of promulgating um, when it comes to state regulation. So in California, um, the state agency responsible for issuing regulations under the CPRA they're behind um, they've announced that because of challenges and standing up a new agency the scope of their statutory mandate but they're they're not going to meet their July 1 deadline um, but they are beginning to hold informational sessions um, as part of their preliminary their preliminary rulemaking um, efforts the the March twenty nine session that they're they're, um, they've scheduled will feature um, dark patterns and how user opt-out mechanisms are treated under the, the CPRA. Um, we, we know that dark patterns have been a focus of state and federal regulators in enforcement actions. And this March 29 session is going to be a, an interesting opportunity to explore in a regulatory proceeding um, for industry and advocates, um, how dark patterns can, can be addressed. I'm looking forward to that. Um, the second session on, um, on the, uh, the 30th, I think, it will discuss privacy operations management and um, automated decision-making. So a lot to unpack in a handful of days. And then Colorado, um, which hasn't formally initiated its rulemaking process. Um, and I should say, just as a matter of table setting, the Colorado Privacy Act takes effect on July 1, 2023. Most of its rulemaking um, uh it, it doesn't need to be completed till um, July 1, uh, 2025, um, but it's it's begun to receive um, informal input on a variety of identified topics through um, a, a web uh, portal. So um, there's just a lot happening in this space federally um, on uh, the state level, and uh, we're keeping an eye on all of it, um, including you know trends and, and what is um, uh, what the key developments are so that we can inform, excuse me, um, I've got a puppy in the background who's unhappy. <laughs> um, so that we can, so, so we're, we're keeping an eye on trends, we're keeping an eye on in, um, what's happening in enforcement and uh, we're keeping an eye on the puppy in the background who's growling.
0: <laughs> well, and at the risk of stealing any of Paul's thunder, the last time I checked, someone has asked the CTPA, hey, are you gonna delay enforcement since you're behind on your rulemaking? And as I recall, they took it under advisement to inquire after that. Is that the latest call, or Laura?
2: I don't know that they've made a, a formal pronouncement on that, but um, certainly the the AG, um, when it was uh, behind in in its rulemaking, um, was uh, mostly engaged um, on the CPP on the CCPA uh, uh, enforcement in education. Um, so we expect similar activities, um, after promulgation of the CPRA rules. Um, Aaron, Paul, any, any different view?
3: No, I, I think that's right. And I think, you know, especially when enforcement includes a right to cure that, that sort of falls in the same category almost as an education component too. Right. But, but yes, I mean, I fully expect that, that, you know, it's, um, I, I would never expect there to be a formal pronouncement about what exactly they'll, they'll do enforcement-wise, but you know, certainly I think there's going to be great emphasis on making sure everyone is fully educated and knows what's, what's coming down the pipeline.
0: So a formal pronouncement of grace period may be unlikely. And, and for those who took solace in Laura's comment about Colorado regulations coming not until 2025, I believe that's also the same time that their cure period expires. So with the hammer comes the, the takeaway of the safety net, you might say, so, uh, all right. Well, thank you, Laura. Let's, let's make this funner. It's already pretty fun, I think, but let's make it even funner with, with the March Madness here combined with state legislation. So we're gonna, we're gonna click through more graphically what's going on in these state legislatures, and each of us is going to have some commentary. There there will likely not really be winners and losers, which is the, the trend these days. So, um, Aaron, you're back on. Uh, quickly remind us where, sort of, we're more in the chronological vein here, where do things stand um, as to formality of the law in Utah? Um,
1: well, we... Uh... Have seen a, a message in the chat that the bill was signed by the governor of Utah. Um, I have to say that I haven't verified that yet myself, but um, I think we can we can consider Utah to be advancing um, in in the
0: competition here. Trust but verify. We'll we'll look at we'll take that under advisement that the governor has signed it. See. Okay, Utah advancing. Uh, Connecticut, I believe Connecticut belongs to me. So Connecticut has uh, SB six. Um, and it is moving along, it is more in the vein of uh, the Colorado law, uh, although it shares an important characteristic with Virginia, which is that it does not have any formal rulemaking associated with it. So these laws are differing on that, and that's an important distinction. Um, It does talk about dark patterns, which is becoming more of a common feature, and it advanced uh, from committee just on March 15th. So, um, it is moving forward by a comfortable vote and Connecticut is, is on its way. However, the legislative session ends on May 4th. So time is ticking for Connecticut to progress as well. So that's one that's in the works. Uh, if others who know anything about Connecticut, if, if not, I will move on to Oklahoma.
2: So Oklahoma is me, and Oklahoma, interestingly, and Adam, we've got a question in the in the chat from Adam, which somehow I managed to uh, bungle, and I'm not sure about this, but um, Oklahoma, the Oklahoma bill passed the House yesterday by a comfortable vote of 74 to 15, where it's headed to the Senate. Um, it is not a comprehensive bill. It is pretty um, thin, with uh, but with low thresholds of only $15,000, uh, more than 50,000 consumers or 25% revenue, um, there's no private right of action, um, but it does create new consumer rights of access and deletion. Um, it does allow civil penalties and it would go into effect uh, January 1 of 2023. So this is one to keep an eye on.
0: All right, moving to
3: the, what we'll call the southeastern bracket for Iowa. Well, that's me. Um, so Iowa uh, has also had some some recent action. Um, so Iowa has a, a introduced a bill that started a very Virginia-like um, and then was amended to more closely line up with Utah. And so we've seen You know, the right to correct, right to opt out of profiling removed from the bill. Um, There's no obligation for risk assessments, no opt ins for sensitive data, um, no private right of action in Iowa. Um, Just last week, the House voted to advance the bill um, by a pretty strong majority. It was 91 to 2. Um so things are 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 looking to move forward there, but um also on a really tight timeline. Their session ends April 19th, so they've got a very limited window to try to get something done there. New York.
2: Well, the New York Bill is um odd indeed. Um this is New York Privacy Act, um, ambitious uh and um, it has advanced to the New York State Senate Consumer Protection Committee. It is sitting in the internet committee. Um, it, as I said at the um, earlier, it, it would impose a duty of loyalty and a duty of care on controllers. Um, and examples of that in the text include not engaging in deception in user interface design and conducting risk assessments of all personal data processing. Um, requires regular data protection assessments. There's a question about trends. Um, in assessments, um, provides that privacy notices be written in easy to understand um, language at an eighth grade reading level or below. Um, And um, there is, importantly, a private right of action where uh, plaintiffs could recover actual damages or $1,000 plus discretionary attorney's fees in the event of a violation of the opt-in consent, automated decision-making, or controller response sections. Um, The bill's been before the Senate, uh, as I said, Internet and Technology Committee since February. Uh, But unlike many state legislatures, which are wrapping up their sessions, Uh, The New York legislature is typically in session through early June, and as a former staffer in the New York State Senate, which was featured on Billions last Sunday, um, it uh, can sort of be called back into session at any time. It's a permanent um, uh, session. So um, I don't know that we can ever really take solace that that one's off the table.
0: All right, thank you. Laura Moonlight's in our media practice as well. So thank you, thank you for that. And <laughs> Moonlight so, like in our
2: billions practice, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Uh, Florida in a red, someone, that's either a typo or there's a reason, someone will tell us.
1: There, There is a reason for that. Um, so Florida, uh, it's nine um, privacy bill was noteworthy or, or notorious. Uh, depending on your point of view for um, containing a private right of action that was not limited as California's is to certain types of, of data breaches, but would have extended to um, at least some of the uh, privacy rights included in the bill at the Florida House by a very large margin of one hundred three to eight. Um, but and, and it was sent to the Senate. Um, but did not advance in the Senate and the Florida legislature has since gone out of session. So um, at least for this go-round, Florida HB9 uh, with its private right of action is not advancing. Um, However, with Wings uh, sometimes work in the legislative world, um, you know, a, a first pass at something um, like a private right of action can uh, prepare the ground in the future. So that will certainly be um, something that that we'll watch in Florida and other states um, in, in the next term.
0: Thanks, Aaron. Tennessee in the Northeast bracket up against Oklahoma. I have Tennessee. And Tennessee is in red also deliberately because the legislative session is closed and the Tennessee bill 1554 isn't going anywhere this time around, somewhat like Florida. Tennessee is interesting in, in at least two ways or what was happening there is interesting in at least two ways. One feature is that it included a safe harbor for compliance with the NIST framework. For those of you who are familiar with the NIST framework, it's actually not a prescriptive framework but it's widely uh, reviewed and, and indeed followed. And that's a, a unique feature that uh, would have to be figured out in, in, in practice and probably hasn't been yet, but a neat, a neat feature and, and give them credit for creativity. Also, part of the failure of the bill was a deliberate explicit recognition by the legislators of the burden on businesses, the burden of compliance. But you may say, well, isn't that a factor in all of these you know, sausage makings? But this was more explicit in talking about how a privacy program, and this may be a music to the ears of some of you, the privacy program that would be required for compliance would be excessively burdensome on businesses. So some new features involved in the discussions in Tennessee, but it is at least stalled, and so in red. I believe then we finish with Massachusetts, which comes last coincidentally.
3: Um, yeah, so Massachusetts is uh, Senate Bill twenty six eighty seven, which is the Massachusetts Information Privacy and Security Act. A- Aaron mentioned the acronyms earlier. Who doesn't love saying NIPSA um, for your privacy law? Um, it it so it it was approved out of a committee in early February, but hasn't advanced since. And you know, Laura highlighted um, it as one of the the more unique bills that, that has been floated around. Some of the really unique elements like an annual opt-in consent requirement are, are, are removed in the current version, but it still is, is um, pretty heavily following CPRA-style consumer rights, including you know, a, a private right of action, um, sort of mirrors Colorado for the business obligations, and then has some some unique elements like um, designating a lawful basis for uh, processing information. Um, there's still time in Massachusetts. Their session doesn't end until the end of July. But, you know, as I noted, it, it, there hasn't been a lot of momentum um, right now. And, and, you know, I think as, as Laura was commenting, just generally, um, you know, I think we're seeing that the bills that, that take some of these more um, unique approaches are the ones that that tend to be kind of stalling out, whereas the ones that are following some of the similar trends that we saw in, in Virginia and Utah are the ones that that seem to be moving.
0: Okay, thank you, Paul. Well, those are our contestants. And as I say, you'll have to join us at a subsequent webinar to find out who's making it into the uh, subsequent final four, et cetera. So thanks, thanks, everyone. Let's, let's turn back to our Uh, I am say regularly scheduled programming. So we're moving to the portion where we want to talk about compliance a little bit. But as you may have surmised from Aaron's excellent summary of Utah, Utah may not be a game changer for your compliance program. In other words, no earth shatteringly new substance in that new law, which we hope is, is some thought for those listening overarching principles that we would suggest for compliance in a comprehensive manner with all of these different state concerns and as Laura has expressed, other sources of concern outside of state legislatures. Well, lest there was a lack of clarity, the time for delay is past. So if compliance is a value within your organization, this is happening now and the head in the sand strategy, which if you're here, you probably don't engage in, is a set strategy to put aside and start moving forward. California may be behind on issuing regulations, but it's in process. Colorado is going to issue regulations and take away your cure period. Even for those states that don't formally have a regulation capability, they've got enforcement, so uh, that will matter as well. Also, these issues are complicated, not just legally and substantively, but also often to accommodate them, quite technical. And I'll have some comments on that in a moment. So don't delay, but don't panic. We, we do want to encourage you to focus on similarity over difference and the prevalence of some of the same, many of the same features among all of these laws. They are starting to incorporate, uh, Aaron, for example, gracefully said the same trio of opt-ins and opt-outs or vice versa that we might expect to see from all of these laws point being obsessing over the differences is probably not the most efficient way to approach a compliance program, but rather to focus on what's similar across them. How are they similar on notices? How are they similar on consumer rights? How are they similar on uh, opt-outs and opt-ins? There's a lot of that there. We talk so much about the difference. Maybe it makes us um, feel more nuanced about them. Uh, It's definitely there, but it doesn't need to be the focus. And as as I hinted, there is a more principles-based approach that's starting to appear in these laws that aren't just there for window dressing. They are intended to guide compliance. For those who are familiar with GDPR, it is very much a principles-based approach. Accountability, transparency, fairness. Those issues are starting to explicitly appear, not in all of these laws, but in some of them. And they're a good guidepost, no matter whether they are part of the text of a law or not.
1: Robert um let me just jump in on that point before you you move we we um, address in a little bit more detail a question from the chat about point about accountability um you know i sort of think of the being related to uh, demonstrating compliance and so- they, an assessment requirement shows up in three of the four laws on that um, at this point and
0: not having the requirement. Aaron, you were a bit choppy for me and I don't know if I was the only recipient of that experience.
1: I I apologize. Um, I hope this is better. Give me a thumbs up if, if you can hear.
0: Were you asking about um, data risk assessment or data protection risk assessment? Uh,
1: I, I was um, just making a brief point about that and that at this point on not requiring assessments, um, that is a requirement in the other states. And I think goes to, to the point about a guiding principle to these laws. Sorry for that.
0: That's, all right, thank you.
2: So, so, um, I, you know, I, I'm I'm curious, Robert, as as you think about um, the the uh, you know looking at, at compliance generally, um, you know, and you're thinking about, about the individual state laws. Why not take uh, you know a look at the at the various state laws and pick the strictest? Um, and then
0: comply with that? That is a fair and and I think slightly challenging question, which I appreciate because it it does mitigate against the universal building box similarity approach. I I would suggest that picking the strictest law is actually just a way of saying picking one of them because strict is in the eye of the beholder they have features that are different. And the value of those differences will matter differently to different companies. Maybe the private right of action is an obsession of your organization. Maybe global privacy preference signals is an obsession. And so you care about the difference between California and Colorado on that score. Maybe you harvest or collect sensitive data. Maybe you don't. Now you might say, well, Robert, now you're you're invoking all these differences to make your point. I hope there's an effective subtlety there between saying think about the similarities, but recognize that you can't just pick one of the laws that you think is the strictest and comply with that one, or you've just come up with a narrow compliance program. So there is no strictest. There's what matters to your business. And I think what matter, should matter to your business, if you are indeed subject to all of these laws, is picking those most universal elements and then having levers available to you or dials available to you to turn up or down in certain places to make sure that you can accommodate it, and that is my that is, those are my thoughts on that. And so a, a way that I that I put this on the slide that slightly tongue in cheek perhaps, which is your knowledge your knowledge and your familiarity as a as a privacy professional within an organization should aim for let's just should aim for pretty comprehensive knowledge base about the state by state comparisons and nuances, if you are indeed subject to different state laws, but that doesn't necessarily mean that your program needs to operationalize the same level of nuance that you might know. So the fact that you're aware of how it may be an issue of collection from the data subject versus personal information about the data subject is something that you are aware of, but doesn't necessarily have to change your opt-out system. And so, that would be my advice to try to learn as much as you can refer to folks like us to help you get there but note that that doesn't mean that you have to take all of that knowledge and put it in action in the way that you actually interact with consumers whether your whether your ultimate choice is uh, a arguably more conservative or a more um, lenient standard according to your business desires and that comes to risk and, and risk tolerance and if i rewrote this point i think i'd recast it as resources if your business is like almost any business I've ever known and has a resource limit to what they can attribute to managing a privacy program, then you're gonna to have to make choices. So you take that knowledge, you make choices and you move that into the operationalization of your privacy program based on the values of your company, based on your exposure, based on your financial position, et cetera. If this is starting to sound like, hey, this sounds like any other business decision we might make, m- maybe that's the intent. I also wanted to point out that one place to look for, and this leads into what Paul's gonna talk about, one place to look to see how this is going is to look at the California AG's enforcement disclosure. So they recently, months ago now, came out with some information about actions that they had undertaken and it was anonymized. Well, not by any mathematical standard, I would argue, but it was anonymized. And they said things that are interesting. The majority of the actions were not fancy. They were about privacy policies and disclosures. So that's a, a nice deflation to some of the sophistication that we're talking about otherwise. Make sure your privacy policy is written at the eighth grade level and is coherent and is honest. And that's been true forever. It also talked about, hey, don't forget you have a mobile app. Well, that's not amazing. That's not rocket science. Don't forget you have a mobile app and you have disclosures that you owe there. Uh, a little bit more interesting. They said, hey third-party global opt-outs like the, the you know, potential NAI and DAA and those systems or no, those don't meet the requirement anymore. Again, that was pretty obvious from the get-go, from the jump. So there is, I think, something to be said about this more, more universal, more obvious approach, and then dig into the details where needed and where appropriate for your business. The final point I mentioned, I would come back to this about technical solutions and software improving. We lawyers love to be in paper and documents and the, the potentially inefficient way to do things. And we're moving past that as quickly as we can. There are, have been immense improvements in the software solutions that are available to automate your privacy program. Tons of companies competing in this space and really starting to be able to offer at a fair price Systems that will help you take the knowledge you have and turn it into a privacy program that can work at scale without breaking your business. So, don't shy away from investigating those solutions as well.
2: Yeah, we see a lot of a lot of questions about that in the in the practice. So, it's a it's, it's an important point.
0: Uh, time time wise, I think we should move on to Paul as quickly as we can. So, Paul, let's talk about enforcement. And um, give us your
3: knowledge there. Yeah, and and, and I'll try to do it just sort of a brief overview before we jump into a, a few specific examples. But you know, I, I want to emphasize a point that you know, I think we've said throughout and, and Robert, you kind of hit on at the end here is that, you know, look, it, it, your compliance and what you do as a company doesn't end when the law passes and gets implemented and, and rules are in place, right? You, you need to be aware of what enforcement trends are happening. And, and the California example is a great one. And looking back at exactly sort of historically what California has done, their, their um, enforcement disclosures mirror their privacy activity generally for the last like two decades, right? I mean, looking at privacy policies, ensuring that, you know, you're consistent with what you're doing on your mobile app. Those are things that that are common trends that you've seen historically. And I would expect to see the same kind of enforcement practices that have happened in the past happen in the future um, as some of these laws start to get rolled out. I, I think it's also important to, it, to really emphasize the idea that, Um, your engagement and involvement um, on a proactive basis is important for future enforcement and thinking about how you can reach out, not just to lawmakers as as some of these other state laws are continuing to be developed, but also to the enforcers themselves. And, And Colorado really is, I think, a shining example of that right now, that not only do they have an open door policy like every AG does to come and talk to them about, you know, your practices and concerns you might have about potential enforcement and the ways laws could be interpreted. Um, But AG Weiser has been extremely proactive in trying to engage the the business community. Um, You know, as we've talked about before the rulemaking even commences, um, he wants to have listening sessions and and one-on-ones with businesses to really understand uh, what needs to be done to, to get it right. I mean, that's been sort of the overall message is he wants to get it right on the front end with the rulemaking and not have to come back and fix issues on the back end based on enforcement. Um, the cure period we've talked about is a perfect example. I mean, Robert, you kind of highlight sort of when the cure period ends, coincides with the implementation of the rules, but, but Wiser's also been pretty open that He's, he's undecided sort of where that should go, right, beyond there, that there may be rules that, that they could implement that would extend the period. Um, and he wants that engagement and, and to really understand, um, you know, how their decisions will impact um, your ability to, to be a compliant company. Um, and part of this is also because Wiser, like, like most of the AGs, um, are not unsympathetic to the idea that as more state laws pass, you are dealing with, a, a patchwork, right? And trying to figure out compliance um, among these laws as, as you just talked about, Robert, is 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 going to get increasingly challenging as you go from four laws to to 14 to, to 40, right? I mean, that's that's going to get more complex. Um, you know, and so I think wanting to ensure that is is going to be very important. Um, the the last quick note I want to make too on on just sort of a broad overview is I don't assume that privacy is a partisan issue right um, you know I think history suggests otherwise and and certainly Utah passing um, their law in such a unanimous way is 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 demonstration that not only like Laura said are the constituents demanding um, you know that that their privacy concerns be addressed but um, the reality is is that Privacy and and the issues underlying it is both a very Republican and a very Democratic issue, but maybe for different reasons, right? I think you're going to see a continued trend where, especially on the enforcement side, too, Republicans and Republican AGs are going to generally be looking at You know, the the sheer volume of data that you are collecting about individuals and then ultimately how that data gets used to potentially manipulate choices or engage in in so-called dark patterns to to force people into certain decisions that they may not have otherwise made, Um, whereas you're seeing more of an enforcement trend right now where Democrats are shifting to look at some of the potential harms that can occur to especially youth as some of that data collection is happening. So ultimately, they're, they're getting at some of the same underlying issues with, with two different objectives, perhaps, that, that have a lot of overlap. Um, and, and it's going to continue to be that way. Um, I'm just going to spend a couple minutes talking about you know, some of the history, because I think that does help um, view what could happen in the future um, and you know I, I I would just do a quick note that you know long before there were any before California passed anything there was certainly a lot of AG activity in the privacy space I mean when I started at an AG office 20 plus years ago um, you know we had investigators going and digging in dumpsters, looking for records and and, ensuring that people's paper documents were were properly destroyed. And and we used to like to joke that that kind of shifted a few years later to the dumpster of the Internet as you started to look online at at how information was being was being secured and stored. And, And you saw state laws as they pass data breach laws, start to get into the realm of, of protecting that information and ensuring that you know, sensitive information is destroyed and not readily available um, you know, to, to potentially expose people. And, and, and I think you also started to see um, not only those enforcement efforts happen under just straight UDAP, you know, straight deception theories, but a, a sort of smattering of other state um, privacy laws. Um, Texas, as, as, as I've made this comment before, but as much as everybody writes about how Illinois had the first biometrics law, Texas actually had the first biometrics law. It's now 20 years old and was just enforced for the first time a couple weeks ago. But, but the point being that these laws have been around, right? I mean, states have been looking at different ways to tackle these issues and watching the enforcement trends is very helpful to understand sort of how these things um, you know, are going to progress through, through different administrations. Um, I, I do want to make a comment in terms of, of straight UDAP enforcement, because even in the absence of a comprehensive state privacy law or even a, a sector specific or, or, you know, specific type of conduct like biometrics, states are going to continue to use their UDAP authority to pursue um, general privacy cases. Because those those core consumer rights that Aaron talked about at the beginning that you see so clearly laid out in in the Utah bill of transparency and consent, that's that's a, a deception argument. I mean, I think you can use a UDAP um, theory to try to pursue the same kind of of case and the same kind of underlying rights. And I think you've seen that historically and are gonna continue to see it um, in the future. And if, if you go to the next slide, um, you know, I'll just real quick touch on some of the, the activities um, you know, that we've seen just in, in recent weeks. We talked about the, the Texas um, Facebook case, their first use of, of their biometrics law. Um, you know, I, I think that that is a trend you're going to see. Is that now that we see more attention to the issues about um, what kind of information is being collected, states like Texas that have had laws on the book or uh, on the books but not used are going to start to use them. Um, the the publicly announced TikTok investigation um, that is a a multi-state case um, is is you know again it's very similar to one that was announced last November uh, um, against Facebook, but um, I think you're going to see those same kind of principles and theories of focusing on the most vulnerable um, type of consumer so here it's children and ensuring that those data collection practices aren't harming those children a- as an aside I think the, the underlying legal theories are going to be really interesting to, f- to, to track here because it's not so much a straight deception case as it is more of like a public nuisance you know public health type theory that that you might see um, pursued And then you know the the geolocation, um, case that four states filed, uh, um, you know, just a few weeks ago against Google. Again, that that was a straight UDAP enforcement effort, but uh, but focused on the types of representations that were made about Google's data collection practices and misrepresentations that were made about the types of controls that consumers actually have over those the, that data collection practice.
0: Join us next month to follow on to much of what Paul said, which is to talk about updates in privacy litigation. We're gonna become more litigation focused in our next meeting, maybe swap out some of the personnel, I better not be there. And um, we, will circulate, <laughs> we will circulate these slides, so um, don't worry. And, and Paul will be circulating a internet dumpster meme to go with uh, the slideshow. So we do appreciate you all joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, learned a lot, had a good time. And we look forward to seeing you next month for a litigation discussion. Thanks, everyone.